Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It is great to see you. It's great to have you here to study Torah for the daily reading as well. Um, we have now recently started learning some Mishnayos, Mishnayot, in honor of my grandfather, um, Tzvi Hirsch ben Chaim Mishayo Kohen. So indeed the learning should be in, uh, in his merit and an elevation for his, for his neshama. So let's jump in. I am going to get, um, you know what, I actually have the page open from last time, so I'll just pull it up. Today is the fourth reading of Bamidbar. I'm going to share my screen with you in just a moment. Okay, I hope this works. Bamidbar. Perfect. Reading number four. Now we get a little bit of a conversation about the um, uh, about the Levites. So we counted up until now. Bamidbar, of course, means well, literally means in the desert. But the book is known in English as Numbers, in Hebrew also as Chumash Habikudim, the book of the counting or the census, because the Jews are counted at the right at the beginning of the. Uh, of, of, the, of the book, of this fourth book of the Torah. And as they were counted, if you, you know, as those that have been with me the last few days know, so repeatedly the Torah says, count the, the Israelites, count the Jewish people, but not the Levite family. They are counted separately. The Levites are counted separately. So we even count Menashe and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph, separately in order to still have 12 tribes. Either way, the Jews, the Israelites were counted together, I think it was about 603,550, if I recall correctly. That was the total number of men, 20 to 60, the military age. Um, and now we, we focus on the Levites a little bit right here in Numbers chapter 3. Okay, here we go. These are the descendants of Aaron and Moses on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's great that we have so many Mount Sinai references here which is, you know, it's great because it's a few days before the holiday of Shavuot, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai. So it's kind of cool to get like these callbacks, like Sinai Desert, Mount Sinai. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting about that? You know, I, I wondered why they were called Mount Sinai. It does say there is a tradition. I don't know if you've ever spoken about it. I think maybe we had one class that focused on it at some point recently. It says that at Sinai, anyone who had any type of physical ailment was healed. So if somebody, you know, was the leg was hurting, the arm was hurting, you know, whatever it is, at Mount Sinai, there was this collective healing. And it's derived from various verses. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it was a place of healing. So maybe that's why the hospitals have been called Mount Sinai. Maybe. Most likely they're all hospitals that were founded by Jewish people, right? I would imagine. Yes. I would for sure um, imagine that, yeah. Okay, so here we go. So the, we're now talking about the so sense... We, we still don't know where is You know, there are people that say they know. I don't know that anyone, that anyone knows definitively. You know, if you go to Israel, somebody will, take your, somebody will take your money and tell you they're taking you to Mount Sinai. That's for sure. That's guaranteed, you know. It's... And maybe it is, maybe it's not, but there is no, from my understanding, there is no definitive, authentic tradition, unbroken tradition 
as to where Mount Sinai is. And we've talked about this before. And part of the reason is because Mount Sinai is not, okay, it's, it's like where the most epic moment ha- in, in our history happened. When we got, the to- we got the divine revelation, we heard God's voice. But it's not, it's not where Judaism is built. Judaism is built on our effort, not on divine inspiration. Divine inspiration is great to get you started, to start the relationship. But ultimately, a relationship, any relationship, certainly a relationship with God, is sustained and truly built out on our efforts. Which is why Mount Sinai never became a holy site. One of the reasons why we don't know where it is is because it never was a holy site. It was never like, oh, let's go pray on Mount Sinai. Why wasn't it holy? Because although in the moment God came down on the mountain, it was a temporary, uh, a temporary state because it was only top down. And, you know, we had the course, not the last. So not this one, not the last one, the one, be, the, the, the JLI course all the way back in the fall, which was, which was called Secrets of the Bible. If you recall, we looked at lots of biblical stories and for many of them, they re- hinged on the same idea of a 1.0 and a 2.0 model, like Garden of Eden and eviction, or you know, pre-flood, post-flood, or um, Jacob and Esau, or Rachel and Leah, like these types of the, these do, or Joseph and the brothers. These dualities were were oftentimes predicated on, uh, uh, and, and there were connections obviously drawn between them, but either a top-down model or a bottom-up model. Is it? You know, divine inspiration or is it human initiative? So anything that is just divine inspiration, easy come, easy go. It's not going to last. So that's why Mount Sinai, it's not a holy place. Now, is it, isn't it where the most epic thing happened? Yes. But 40 days later, we danced with the golden calf because it wasn't us. It, it, it wasn't what we built out. It was, you know, a great moment. But if it's not internalized, if it's not, if there's no effort on, on behalf, on our own behalf, then it doesn't last. So that's why the Western Wall is exactly because we yes to building the yes exactly perfect exactly the contrast between the Western Wall and Mount Sinai or the Temple Mount even and Mount Sinai and we we need to have in our minds prayers for Israel because what's going on there is is very 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 difficult very uh, very frightening so we need certainly we need prayers and blessings and Hashem's protection. For Israel, um, but yeah, the Temple Mount, the, the area where the Temple was, is holy. Not only the Western Wall, the whole area is holy still. Why? Because it's a permanent holiness built out by us. And it may sound weird. So you're saying what God contributes is temporary, and what we contribute is permanent. Kind of in this context, yes, because vis-a-vis us, right? The inspiration that comes from above, if it's not us. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't last. But when it's us, coupled, of course, with you know God's command and God's assistance, whatever. But this, but what we the effort that we put in, we build a temple that remains. That that holiness remains forever. Okay, so let's jump back in, verse number two, and so now we're going to get into the Levite families, starting with Aaron, who was a Kohen, but from the tribe of Levi. Remember, just. The tribe, the, the, there was 12 sons of Jacob. One son was named Levi or Levi. His sons are the Levites. 
But within that family, there are Kohanim and Leviim. There are priests and Levites, although they're all from the Levite tribe. So let's start with Aaron. So we have here his sons, Nadab and, and, and Nadab the firstborn, Abihu, Elazar, and Itamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed Kohanim, whom he consecrated to serve as Kohanim. Right again, the Torah is clear to, to clarify. These were the Kohanim. Now, as you and I know, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they brought alien fire, foreign fire, before the Lord in the Sinai Desert, and they had no children. Elazar and Itamar, however, served as Kohanim in the presence of Aaron, their father. So remember, he had four children, four sons, the, the, the eldest two passed away when they brought the unsolicited or unwarranted offering before God. Okay, let's continue. Verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring forth a tribe of Levi. One second. One second, one second, one second. Hold on. You see what just happened here? Look at verse 1. The Torah says these are, this, are the descendants of Aaron and Moses. And it only proceeds to name the sons of Aaron. Do you notice that? What about Moses' kids? They're not here. They're not here. This prompts Rashi to say the following. Yet only the sons of Aaron are mentioned. However, they are considered descendants of Moses because he taught them Torah. This teaches us that whoever teaches Torah to the son of his fellow man, Scripture regards it as if he had begotten him. In other words, Moses, sorry, Aaron's sons are considered to be Moses' children also because Moses taught them Torah. And when somebody teaches someone else's kids Torah, so that teacher is like the child's spiritual parent. So there are biological parents and spiritual parents. And the Torah is teaching us something very important, right? These four children, Nadab, Abihu, Elazar, and Itamar, they're the biological sons of Aaron but also the children of Moses as well, the spiritual children of Moses, because Moses inspired them and taught them Torah. It's a beautiful idea. Okay, yes. Adults teaching adults Torah. Yeah, same thing, same thing, right? So again, it's not literally, obviously, it's not a literal child, but it means a, an influence, a mentorship, a guiding force, a, um, you know, a blessing to that person's life. So 100%. Somebody teaches somebody, somebody educates, somebody helps mentor and guide, 100%. There's, there's that type of relationship. Again, it's not a, you know, when, when, when the, the immediate context here of this teaching is, you know, someone who teaches their friends, children, Torah, it's like they have begotten them. That was the, that's, the, that's the literal quote from our sages that Rashi quotes here. But it refers to really anybody. You know, a, a teaching is kind of giving life, just like parents are giving life. So teaching Torah is giving Spiritual life. And that's, um, that's something really beautiful. Okay, let's continue with... Okay, verse 5. Here we go. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring forth the tribe of Levi, the Levites, and present them before Aaron the Kohen, that they may serve him. Now, it doesn't mean serve him. I mean, what is this? We don't serve other human beings. But they... The point is that they are supposed to assist in the temple goings on, the priestly service. They're not priests, but they're meant to assist in all that. Verse 7, they shall keep his charge and the charge of the entire community before the tent of meeting. 
to perform the service of the Mishkan. Okay? They shall keep his charge. In other words, they need to do what they need to do to keep things done in the right way. What does that mean specifically? Okay, verse 8. Here we have some, some specifics. They shall take charge of all the vessels of the tent of meeting and the charge of the children of Israel to perform the service of the Mishkan. So they were, in, they were in charge of making sure, you know, when they traveled, when they set it up, that they have all the vessels, the menorah, candelabra, the shulchan, showbread table, the altar, you know, all of these things the Levites were in charge of to make sure the Kohanim, the priest, did the actual sacrificial service. But the Levites, I mean, it's not even fair to call them the supporting cast. I mean, they were their own main characters of this, uh, of this experience. Verse 9, You shall give over the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They shall be wholly given over to him from the children of Israel. In other words, they are, they are put in, 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 in his charge to, you know, to oversee as to what, what the tasks are and, what, what, and, what, and what's needed. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall keep their kuhuna. That means their priesthood. Any outsider, non-Kohen, who approaches the temple, those areas that are exclusively for the priests, shall be put to death. Right? It's a capital crime to, um, for a non-Kohen to go where a Kohen goes. All right, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, As for me, God says, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel in place of all firstborns among the children of Israel who have opened the womb, and the Levites shall be mine. God says, the Levites are very special, very dear to me. Instead of the firstborn, I was going to take the, the firstborn, like all the firstborn Jews were supposed to be the chosen ones, if you will, right? The, the select for, the specific, for specific tasks. But that went, down, that, that went down the tubes after the sin of the golden calf when the firstborn were amongst the sinners. The only ones who didn't sin with the golden calf were the Levites. Thus, the Levites are taking the place of the firstborn. Verse 13, why, the fir- why were the firstborn originally slated for this type, of, um, this type of office, so to speak? For all the firstborns are mine since the day I smote all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. In other words, the Egyptian firstborn. I sanctify for myself all the firstborns of Israel. Both man and beast, they shall become mine. I am the Lord. So, indeed, Firstborn are still special. Firstborn are still consecrated to God. And, and in fact, even to this very day, we do, for the, a firstborn Jewish male child, we do something called Pidyan Haben, which is a redemption of the firstborn. The Kohen, you have to essentially give the Kohen money as a redemption to be able to keep your child, right? We do this. This is a, an actual thing. We did this with Nassim. Um, it's, it's, it's a legitimate... Um, um, Jewish practice. It's an authentic, traditional, legitimate Jewish practice of Pidyan Aben, redeeming the firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn really belong to God. Because they owe God everything, because God dist- took out the firstborn Egyptians, but spared the Jewish firstborn. So, God says, Li Bachar. To me, all the firstborns, right? All the firstborns shall become mine. They are mine. Practically speaking, they didn't, they didn't have a major role in the temple. The Levites took that role. Why? Because although the firstborns are sanctified to God, nonetheless, they sinned with the golden calf, and thus the, the Levites took that over. 
um, there is a place in Torah where it talks about how there were coins given as a redemption, one Levite for one firstborn. Okay. Um, here we go. Take a look at Rashi. What I told you is, is from this Rashi, if you can see it. Um, that the Israelites should have to hire them for my service. I gain my right to them through the Israelite firstborns, taking them, the Levites, in their place. For originally, the service was performed by the firstborns, or was supposed to be. But when they sinned by worshiping, in the, gold, by worshiping the golden calf, they became disqualified. The Levites, who had not committed idolatry, were chosen in their stead. So, the, so what's the short of it? The bottom line is, firstborn are still special. Firstborn are still beloved to God. But they lost their, their chance to, to officiate in the temple and run the temple service because of their sin with the golden calf. Okay, so what's the moral of the story? Don't, don't worship the golden calf. But what's also the moral of the story is, easy come, easy go. If we're riding on inspiration that comes from outside, then that's not a sustainable spiritual approach. If we're just trying to get through by like, you know, I'll get inspired on Rosh Hashanah, I'll get inspired on the holiday, I'll get inspired then, I'll get inspired then. That's not a sustainable model. We have to put in the work to self-sustain. And that means daily prayer and Torah study and doing mitzvot and staying plugged in. That's the effort that we do. That's how we maintain that relationship and really keep ourselves in a both physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually healthy place by being plugged in to, to a higher truth. Okay, so that's it today for the, for the Torah reading, for the daily section of Torah, reading number four about Midbar. And what I want to do is, let's see if we can um, do a little Mishnayis. How does that sound? Okay, fantastic. So we're up to chapter two. Mishnah 1. So just to show you where it is, so 2 is chat. Great. Great. The whole thing disappeared. Okay. Here we go. So chapter 2 is that little 2 that you see up there. Not sure that keeps on happening. And 1. I found it myself, so I can always look myself. Oh, you got Safaria? I mean, yeah, I found it online. It's awesome. Safari is fantastic. They even have an app, by the way, that's also really good. It's also handy. You could just dial up, you know, so many things in, 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 in Torah, Judaism, Jewish stuff, so much stuff in English with commentaries in English. It's really amazing. Okay, so let's jump in to this. And we're going to begin the second chapter. Okay, okay so, and it's great also because this edition of the translation is not a literal translation. It's got commentary built in. The bold letters or the bold words are kind of the literal translation. Everything else is kind of, you know, a little bit of running commentary alongside. So the first question discussed in the Mishnah, in our Mishnah, uh, chapter two, Mishnah one, is the question of intent, which we know as Kavanah, which is intent, like, what were you thinking? One who is reading the sections of the Torah, which comprise Shema, so imagine you happen to be reading the book of Deuteronomy in the morning and you happen to come across this, the, the part of the Torah that has the Shema. And now you're reading it out loud because you're, you're learning it. You're reading the Torah that you're studying out loud and it's the Shema. And it's, 
and the time for the recitation of the morning or evening Shema arrived. So in other words, it's unbelievable. You were studying Torah, saying the Shema that you're studying, but now it's the time anyway. So the question is, do you need to do it again for prayer? Right? The question is, you, you, you read the Shema for Torah study, but it happened to be at the time of prayer. The question is, did you, pardon the expression, did you kill two birds with one stone? Or must you do it again? So the mission says, if he focused his heart, if, in other words, focus his heart means if you meditated for a moment and said, okay, I'm about to learn the Shema or read the Shema in my Torah study, but I have in mind that it's also for the prayer, then he fulfilled his obligation and need not repeat Shema in order to fulfill his obligation. So then you could, again, if you, if, if you feel it, if you have that intention in your heart, then you have killed two birds with one stone. This is true even if he failed to recite the requisite blessings. Remember, we talked about the two blessings before and the one blessing after, or the two blessings before and the two blessings after, depending if it's the morning or the evening. Even if you didn't say any blessings before or after, you were just studying Torah, and you were reading the Torah out loud, and you came to the Shema, and you said the Shema, and you had in mind that this is also for the Shema, for the prayer Shema, Done, you're good. Now, ab initio, that means, I believe, lechatchila, that means like going into it. Ideally, one may not interrupt the recitation of Shema. In other words, if you're saying the Shema, you shouldn't like talk in the middle of it and be like, oh, hey, hey, Gary, how's it going? That's like, don't, Shema should be uninterrupted. Like the Amida. Like the Amida. The Tanoim, however, that the Tanoim refer to the sages from the era of the Mishnah. So any rabbis quoted in the Mishnah from that time period, they're known as Tanoim, the teachers. Those that are from the Talmudic era from a few hundred years later are called Amaroim. I'm just giving you terms. Tanoim and Amaroim. So Tanoim are from that earlier time period. Um, again, second century or so of the common era, second, third century. And then again, a few hundred years later are the Amaroim. Okay, so the Tanoim, the Mishnaic sages, however, disagreed over how strict one must be in this regard about not interrupting the Shema. They distinguished between interruptions between paragraphs and interruptions within each paragraph. Remember, the Shema contains three paragraphs drawn from three different places in the Torah. So it's actually three quotes three sections of Torah that are just lined up one after the other. So here we go. At the breaks between paragraphs, one may greet an individual due to the respect that he is obligated to show him. And one may respond to another's greeting due to respect. So imagine somebody comes in and says, Hey, Donna, how's it going? Or Shalom Aleichem. You can answer with a greeting according to this opinion, you can, uh, you can answer the greeting or you can even initiate a greeting. Again, assuming that it's the respectful thing, I don't think it's just for a casual conversation. I think if it's a matter of respect, whatever, um, then you can, you can respond or, you know, or, or initiate even between the paragraphs and in the middle of each paragraph. Okay? So one may greet an individual due to the fear that the individual may harm him if he fails to do so. So again, this is only in a certain situation. Imagine if a person, the king walks by or somebody like that, and you feel like, okay, if you don't greet the king, you know, 
it's going to be a problem. And for your middle of Shema, okay, so you're allowed to greet if you're afraid that harm may fall you, may, may befall you if you don't. And one may respond to another's greeting due to that same fear. So again, if we're dealing with, with a situation where you fear that by not initiating or responding, it could be dangerous for you, please interrupt your Shema. Rab, that's Rabbi Meir. This is the same as Rabbi Meir. One of the Tanoim. In the singular, we call him a Tana. Rabbi Yehuda, another Tana says, by the way, this Rabbi Yehuda, who's being quoted right here, is the one who was the grand editor, the chief editor of the entire Mishnah. He was the one, I mean, this is not all him, clearly it's Rabbi Meir's opinion, but he's the one that kind of organized, compiled, edited, you know, just put it all together. He quotes himself sometimes. Rabbi Yehuda says, there is a distinction. I think it's the, either the 100s or the 200s of the Common Era, so it's about 1,800 years ago or so. Okay, so there is a distinction, Rabbi Yehuda says, there's a distinction between greeting someone and responding to his greeting. So he says, in the middle of each paragraph, one may greet another due to fear and respond due to respect. He gets a little bit more nuanced. He says, okay, so middle of the Shema, middle of that paragraph, so if you're afraid that by not greeting someone it's going to be a problem, so you're allowed to greet them, but you can respond even due to respect. Like if it's somebody very important and they say hi or shalom aleichem, you can respond even if it's not fear-driven, even if it's only respect-driven. But in the breaks between paragraphs, one may greet another due to respect and respond with a greeting to any person who greets him, whether or not he's obligated to show him respect. Again, this opens it up a little bit more. Rabbi Yehuda is a little bit more lenient. And he says, again, if you're between paragraphs, you can greet someone out of respect. And respond to anyone who greets you. Even if it's not, even if it's someone, hey, Don, are you allowed to say, hey? And maybe hold up a finger like, I'm, I'm, I'll be with you in a second. Let me finish this up. If one is by oneself, can one, must it be like verbalized, audible? Yes. Person? Yes. Excellent question. So in general, prayer is meant to be verbalized. Um, even the Amida, which sometimes is called the silent Amida, it's not silent. You're meant to say it softly. Now, you know, one of, the, one of the things that is the hallmark of a Chabad synagogue, and I can't vouch, you know, for a Chabad house where, not, you know, where people are, 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 are sometimes new to things and whatever, but and if you go to like, you know, 770 in Brooklyn, you know, when we go to 770, you'll see like davening is out loud. You know, it's a, there's a loud voice of doubt. Everyone's davening out loud. When it comes to the Amida, it gets really quiet. Not that people aren't saying it out loud, but it's, it's said in a whisper so that only you can hear it. But otherwise, the prayer is loud. It doesn't mean you have to shout it, but um, it just means that you're, it's, it's, it's meant to be verbalized. Okay, now here we go. As for what constitutes a paragraph, let's do Mishnah Base, Mishnah 2. So, so what's a paragraph in the Shema? So these are the breaks between the paragraphs. So between the first blessing and the second. We said before um, that the Shema in the morning is bookended by or sandwiched by two blessings before and one blessing after. And at night, it's two blessings before and two after. 
So a paragraph includes also the blessings before the Shema. So the breaks between the first blessing and second blessing, between the second blessing and the Shema, between the Shema and the second paragraph, Vahayim Shema, if you indeed heed, between Vahayim Shema, which is the second paragraph, and the third paragraph, Vayomer, and the Lord spoke, Vayomer, and between Vayomer and Chuim Firm, Emet Vyatsev. The blessing that follows the Shema. So essentially, and really this would work better if we actually had a prayer book in front of us, but bottom line is, literally between every paragraph break, he's saying, the Mishnah is saying, that um, that's what we're talking about, a, a break. Now, the rabbis held that each blessing, sorry, sorry, this is the, the rabbis. The rabbis held this opinion that we just said, that each blessing and each paragraph of Shema constitutes its own entity and treat interruptions between them as between the paragraphs. So each section, after, between the first and second blessings, between the second blessing and the Shema, between the first and second paragraphs of the Shema, between the second and third, and after the third, before the blessing afterwards, all those are valid breaks. That's the opinion of the majority of the rabbis. Rabbi Yehuda, however, says, between Vayomer and Emeviyatsev, which begins the blessing of the fall of Shema, one may not interrupt at all. So, in other words, after that third paragraph of the Shema, and the words Emet Vyatsev, which come right after that, the, the third paragraph of the Shema, he says that does not constitute a break. You cannot interrupt that at all. So again, according to Rabbi Yehuda, the commentary says, these must be recited consecutively. Since the paragraphs of Shema are not adjacent to one another in the Torah, and they are not recited in the order in which they appear, the Mishnah explains their placement. Okay, so now we have a new topic, or a related topic, but a bit of a different topic. Why is it that um, we have these three paragraphs of the Shema? And you know what? Maybe it would be helpful if we pull up a quick um, shemachabad.org. Maybe the Shema in the original Hebrew, translation of the Shema. Let's see what we have here. Okay, I think this could work. I mean, it's not going to give us chapter and verse, but it kind of works. Okay, so Shema begins with Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel. Then there's another line that we say kind of quietly. And then we have the three major paragraphs. One. Whoops. Two. And the third, which talks about the Exodus. Right, that's what we talked about last time, right? So it ends with... I am the God, I am God who brought, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? So that's kind of like the Exodus mentioned right there. <coughs> so these are the three paragraphs. So now the mission is going to ask, why this order of these paragraphs? I'm looking if I have a sitter here, but let me see if maybe in the original Hebrew it has the chapter. In, no. Okay, again, here you can see as well, opening line, second line, and then you have the three paragraphs. One, two, and three. Oh, I see it has the footnotes of the sources, but to no avail because we don't have, it doesn't, doesn't quote it here. So, Rabbi, after the reading, Hebrew reading course, I'll be able to read this. Yes, that's the goal. That is the goal. Absolutely. I can read it somewhat. You know, I, I have yeah. learned Hebrew. Well, know, the like goal, yeah, the goal is either for those that have never had a chance to learn or for those that have learned, but you'll want to review it, gain more fluency. Yeah, that's the goal. There's an app. I mean, it's very cool. There's an app. There's flashcards. All, all, all these wonderful resources 
that are available. So it's um, it's pretty cool. Okay. So if someone that's praying, doing the Shema, and if they're interrupted, so I understand, so they can control themselves not to respond, but must they start over if they're interrupted? I don't think so. I think you just I think you just kind of pick it up from where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm just seeing how long this chapter is. I think that we have eight. So maybe we'll do like, maybe we'll do four. We'll do half of them today. Okay, so the Mishnah addresses the following points. Since, from over here, since the paragraphs of, of Shema are not adjacent to one another in the Torah, as I said before, they're like different sections, and they're not recited in the order in which they appear, the Mishnah explains their placement. Like, Why is paragraph one, paragraph one? And why is paragraph 2, 2? And why is 3, 3? Why not the order in which they appear in the Torah, which is, again, I, don't, I can't tell you which one is first, second, and third offhand, and I don't have a sitter right in front of me, but it's not in the correct order of chronological, you know, where they're where the placed in Torah. So why were they put in that specific order? So here we go. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha said, why, in the midst of the recitation of Shema, did the portion of Shema precede that of Ahayim Shema? Right. Why does that first paragraph precede the second if the second came before the first in Torah? So he answers, this is so, so that one will first accept upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, i.e. the awareness of God and God's unity, and only then accept upon himself the yoke of the mitzvot, which appears in the paragraph of Ahayim Shema. In other words, the first, the opening of the Shema is about acceptance of God. The second is about doing the mitzvot and accepting the law. How could you accept the law before you accept God? Because what law are you accepting? It doesn't make sense. Now, why the second before the third paragraph? That's where we continue. Why did Vahayim Shemoah precede Vayomer? Because the paragraph of Vahayim Shemoah is practiced both by day and by night, while Vayomer, which discusses the mitzvah of ritual fringes, is only practiced during the day, that sits it. Right is only practiced during the day. Now, many people wear tzitzit at night, including myself, but it's, that's not a mitzvah. It's just a kind of a custom or an extra stringency. But the mitzvah is only one that is practiced or obligatory by day. Therefore, since it has only a uh, limited mitzvah, or the mitzvah of that paragraph is limited, so therefore, it comes third. Okay, so the mission just explained the order of the Shema, which, by the way, is, is kind of cool because... You know, in another context, a person could open up the prayer book, look at the sources, Deuteronomy this or whatever that, and be like, oh, why are they out of order? And literally the Mishnah addresses it. First, you need acceptance of God, and then we can talk about the mitzvot. First, like, is God, is God real? Yes. All right, now here's what he wants you to do. You can't start, you know, this is what God wants you to do. Who's God? So, right? And then we, we end with the, the mitzvah, the fringe mitzvah. I'm kidding. It's not fringe mitzvah, but the mitzvah fringes, which is only... Let's do number three. Um, one who rec- ah, look at this. One who recites the Shema and did not recite it in a manner audible to his own ear, which is what we were talking about before, either because he read inaudibly or because he is deaf, he fulfilled his obligation. In other words, in other words, if it was said out loud, but it was so soft that the person themselves didn't hear it, or if they said it out loud verbally, but they themselves can't hear it, the question is, did you say it? 
Because remember, Shema means hear. Shema, hear, O Israel. So, right, can, did you... It's like the tree that falls in the forest and no one's around. So you said it, but you yourself didn't even hear it. So, kosher. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the opening opinion says kosher. However, Rabbi Yossi says he did not fulfill his obligation. No, you didn't do the mitzvah. Now, so what is supposed, what is, what is supposed to happen if somebody can't hear themselves? I guess, according to Rabbi Yossi, he just never, you know, he does, he's not able to do that mitzvah. It's kind of like if somebody, you know, God forbid, doesn't have an arm or arms, you can't put on tefillin. It's just, you know, you can only do what you can do. So that's it. So we see a dispute in the, in the law in this mission. All right, next case. One who recited Shema and was not sufficiently precise in his enunciation of its letters. So you said Shema, but you, you know, you didn't say it exactly, perfectly correctly. So Rabbi Yossi says, kosher, he fulfilled his obligation. Rabbi Yehuda says, he did not fulfill his obligation. Next, one who recited Shema, three different cases. Next case, one who recited Shema out of order, meaning he did not read the verses sequentially. He did not fulfill his obligation. So if you read the Shema, not you, but if one reads the Shema in a different order, not kosher. There's not even a debate about this one, right? There's sometimes debates about things. There's no question here. It's not, it's no good. One who recited and erred, ah, to your question before, right? But it was a little bit different, but here we see this, this ruling. One who recited and erred, and you just said the wrong, you know, the wrong order, should go back, should return to the place of Shema, in Shema that he erred, and basically do, do, do it over. In, in golf, that's called a mulligan. A mulligan, yes. Like, I am aware of a mulligan. I've had, I've had to take a... It's been a while since I've golfed, but... Yeah, I'm a golfer. Oh, nice. You know, by the way, um, do you know Stanley Herman? I, you know, I know some people but visually, but I don't know necessarily... You, you, yeah, you for, you for sure have seen him. You know him. Um, he's there in the classes on Thursdays. Um, he, I, he, him and I, I mean, it's been years... Uh, so went, went golfing a few times over at Candler Park, which is not too far from here. There's like a nine-hole golf course. Anyway, so he's, uh, he's my resident go-to golf yeah, dude. Work, I mean, IJA golf. Uh, that's not a bad idea. A little IJA golf um, celebrity golf tournament or something like that. Yeah, it could be like a charity thing. That's a good idea. You got good ideas. I'm, I'm, I have to write that down. Okay, I'm going to write that down right after we're done. Yes. Yes. We're talking tomorrow, and what are we talking about? Remind me. Yes. I knew that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's do four, and then we'll close it out. So number, Mishnah four. Um, okay, here we go. The primary issue in this Mishnah is the requisite degree of concentration when reciting Shema. In other words, how much do you have to be focused on the Shema as opposed to, like, you know, assuming that somebody knows it by heart or whatever, they could just say it, but not even being, not even be paying attention. You know, if you say it for a long time, for many years, it's second nature. So he says like this, laborers engaged in their work may recite Shema while standing atop the tree or atop the course of stones in a wall under construction. I just picture like construction workers on a high rise in Manhattan. And it's like, you know, working from the, from daybreak. Oh, I got to say the Shema. So you're allowed to do it. 
which they are not permitted to do for the Amida prayer, which requires intent of the heart. In other words, the Amida requires an even greater degree of concentration. It cannot be recited, you know, kind of, I don't even know what the right word is, but uh, in, that, in that type of way. But the Shema, although it does require some measure of concentration and, and, and awareness, you can do it kind of while semi being involved in something else. Whereas the Amida, it's all focus. You take three steps back, take three steps forward, put your feet together. It's quiet, it's serene, it's, it's deep, it's focused, it's connected. No, um, no, <laughs> no hard hats permitted while reciting the Amida. Okay. Um, so much good stuff. It's like, oh, let me see what we have here. Okay, I'm so tempted to keep on going. But we're gonna call, we're gonna um, pause here and we'll pick it up. So just for the sake of making sure we are all on the same page here, but primarily myself, just for me to think through the schedule. So tomorrow we are not doing DPP because we will be doing JLI and then you and I are meeting. And then Friday we'll make up, we'll catch up, we'll do... Interruption. Sure. My class. Yes, 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 correct. Thursday, I'm in on Shavuot. I saw it, yes. I saw it when late last night or early this morning, one of those two. I saw it. It looked good. Yeah. Yeah, it should be fun. So I'm going to speak for just a few minutes. Okay, good. And then, um, and right around five o'clock, right? Okay, perfect. So that is so that is that, and then Friday we're gonna do I I yeah we have a lot to do in the in the chumash because we have we we did fourth reading today so we're gonna do five six seven we'll do three readings plus we'll finish off this chapter of Mishnah and then next week I think we'll we'll cover some good ground with the Mishnah and um, could always do more once we're done with this but. One thing at a time. All right, great to see you. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you soon. All right.